0: Yep, so Power BI has been great. I use Power BI every day for just, just sort of my summary report. Feeding into that, and this was a skill I developed or started actually I started tinkering with Python. So most people are familiar with R. Python's similar to R. I'm not gonna argue one's better than the other, but I've just done most of my work in Python. So started tinkering with that when I got back to Brisbane from from Doha. Just playing around with data manipulation in that then through the phd really developed that skill set because i was working with big data sets i had to manipulate a lot of things
1: hello and welcome to the prepare
2: like a pro podcast make sure if you haven't already to subscribe to my youtube channel to receive a notification and never miss a live interview i hope you enjoyed this interview and please share with a friend or a teammate that you think will value this episode let's go Hello and welcome back to the Prepare Like a Pro live chat show. My name is Jack McLean. I'm your host and today my guest is Jacob Jennings. He is currently the sports scientist at the Brisbane Broncos. And our key topic for today's chat will be all about applied sports science, specifically around how to analyze GPS data to identify trends and patterns in match demands. Thanks for jumping on, Jake. Really looking forward to our chat. Thanks for having me, Jack. So those that aren't aware of your work, mate, if you mind providing us a, a background on, I guess, how you got into the
0: industry and, and yeah, the job experience. Yeah, sure. So as you said, I'm currently now the, the sports scientist at the Brisbane Broncos. But I think, you know, going back to where my journey started, I started as an SNC probably in about 2010, working around the place, mostly in Brisbane, in school roles and some semi-pro sport sporting professional club roles in Brisbane in 2014, I think it was. I moved to London to, to travel for a couple of years, so I got on the two-year working visa. My now wife and I went over, and I actually used that opportunity to, to travel, but also I did my ACU master's while I was doing that, and looking back, that was a probably a pretty good way to do a master's degree while you're traveling. At the end of that two years, I was lucky enough to to pick up my first full-time role as an s at Aspire Academy in Doha, so it was a, a bit of a Brisbane contingency over there at the time, so lucky enough that that I ended up over there. I spent two years there working in mainly fencing. That's why that's the role I went over for. That program took a little bit to develop. So, you know, as well I was working in the athletics department and that kind of thing as well. So I was there for about two years. And then I finally moved back to Brisbane for an athletic development coordinator role at one of the private schools here in Brisbane. I was there for a couple of years. And then I think that sort of talking a year previous to this, Jack, I think I got to a level where, there in that role where I was sort of looking for something more. And I guess the challenge of research and working in a new sport like AFL, this this PhD opportunity popped up down in Bendigo in Victoria. So the the beauty of that PhD was it was an industry based PhD. So, you know, I got to continue to to develop as a practitioner. And also, you know, moving into a PhD research project, developed that skill set as well. Convinced the wife to move down there with me for, you know, what was meant to be three, three and a half years. Ended up down there for about two, two and a half, unfortunately over the COVID period. So we didn't get to experience life as, you know, it would normally be. But then with about a year to go on the PhD, this role at the, the Broncos came up and I I was sort of in two minds. Do I finish the PhD and then apply for roles or do I start applying, you know, earlier and if something pops up, then, you know, I make it work. So I was lucky enough to get this role, uh, moved up back up to Brisbane with about a year to go on the PhD. So I just had to drop that back part time. And I think, yeah, I'm probably a month to two months away from submitting. So that's a bit of my journey to now. Yeah, fantastic, mate. And what's the PhD on? And when you were in Bendigo, what sort of research were you looking at? So it was an industry-based PhD. So I was embedded in the Bendigo Pioneers, which are a NAB League, I think it's Coates League now, NAB League Under-18 AFL program. So I was embedded there as their high-performance manager and then undertaking the research on the side. So the remit was, it was sort of a, a part funded by the uni, part funded by the AFL. So the remit for the research was to have, you know, impact across the talent pathway, not just within the Bendigo Pioneers. So the the research, the PhD ended up being on quantifying the demands of match play at NAB League level and comparing them to ASL and then also... A second stream to it was looking at the characteristics associated with players being drafted or not. Is published, there's one last one that's in review at the moment, and then we did a big front-end systematic review on GPS processors, but it's all all tied together now, and uh, yeah, looking to submit in the next month or so. Fantastic, mate. Congratulations. That will be, yeah. This is weight off my shoulders.
2: Weight off your shoulders and and proud moment once you publish it. For those listening in, there, there may be some NAB athletes listening in. What what were some of the key findings in terms of the difference between the
0: demands of a game for a NAB league player compared to AFL? Yeah, so it was actually really interesting. I mean, so I guess if we go back, I'm looking at league-wide data. So a lot of the research in the literature at the moment, you know, particularly around demands of gameplay, is you know usually done on one team or within one club on multiple teams. So, for example. Brisbane Lions up here, they'll do it within their AFL squad, but also their NAB League squad or under-18 squad. I, I, I got access to league-wide data, so it was pretty unique and gave some really good insight. Essentially, from a demands perspective, the under-18 game is shorter in duration, so naturally all of your absolute demands are going to be lower than AHL in terms of total distance, high-speed running distance. Relatively, relative to game time, There's no difference. In in time gone past, people potentially said that, you know, under 18 game, it's not as intense as AFL. Our findings actually show that it is as intense as AFL, just doesn't happen for as much duration. What was different between NAB League and AFL was the the peak periods of demand. So when we delve a little bit deeper and look at the peak one to 10 minutes, AFL is actually a little bit more intense than NAB League. And we sort of put that down probably to skill execution skill execution likely to be a little bit cleaner within the AFL so you can actually move with greater insight and bit more worrying exactly. So that's sort of the conclusions from that paper. But really interesting, I guess, from an application side of things, you know, for players making that transition from NAB League to AFL if they've been drafted, lucky enough to be drafted, I guess applying that information, you know, could could have implications for how a player is introduced into a program, for example. Yeah, I mean, typically there's a one, two, three, four year introductory program. You know, it might actually be that if we know that these players have been exposed to similar intensity demands of gameplay, well, then let's let's actually keep exposing them to that. You know, let's get them in as much match sim as we can in training and let's manage more of their total training volume because that's not what they're used to, right? So yeah, that was sort of the, the main outcome from, from that big demand paper, which was pretty cool. Yeah, And that was across the board, like you mentioned, the the volumes
2: at work rate per minute for metres, but also the high speed and very high speed, they were pretty consistent across
0: the board. Yeah. Yeah. So we did a, a massive, uh, yeah, looked at bloody probably about 30 metrics. Yeah. Uh, generally across the board, relative to game time, they were, they were pretty comparable. Yeah. Fantastic. And the other aspect was looking for trends, I believe, for those that got drafted. What was the... Yeah. So we sort of... It, it sort of went down. This is, I guess, where the sports science side of things comes in. But basically, the question came from, in the AFL or in the talent pathway, there's so much data collected, right? So there's GPS data collected. There's obviously the champion data stats. There's testing days, NABWIG testing days and combine all that. I could see all of this information being collected, but I couldn't really see anything being done with it. You know, what? for me, it was how can we combine all of this data to get a really good understanding of a player profile. And then can we use that information to eventually predict the draft, which we did in my final paper. We actually predicted the 2021 draft and then sat back, watched it and ticked it all off as we went and do some modeling to see if we can identify uh, characteristics that are associated with the player getting drafted or not. So we did a, a positional analysis as well certainly So we started off with just physical testing and GPS data. Then we introduced technical data as well, and we used some some basic regression modeling. But then we looked at some neural networks as well. So, base. I, I mean, I guess what you guys want to know that what came out of it is what gets you drafted. So, I, yeah. I guess basically bigger, more athletic bodies typically get drafted. Bigger in terms of height, or yeah. So just. General- and, General stature, so height and, and, and body mass as well, generally. Everyone thought that 20-metre sprint was pretty, a, a really good predictor. It didn't show up so much on ours. The AFL agility test was much more important than ours. What else? And then the technical involvements as well proved pretty important, particularly in the uh, the fixed position. And Is that, is, is that from champion data? Like the amount that's of- from champion data? Yep, that's from champion data. So we got all of their raw data. And matched it up with our GPS and everything as well. And then aerobic, general aerobic capacity and that kind of thing to your nomadic players. So, not really anything outrageously, putting it all together and creating an athlete profile and then seeing if we can use that to predict draft outcomes. And, and in our in our final paper, I think one of our models got up to about 82% accuracy. So, yeah, wow. But it was, I was- and the image and the, the stats side of things.
2: Like, was that quite specific to the point where kick-to-handball ratio or marks, contested marks, contested
0: possessions. Yeah, so we got a raw output, which is basically every stat they've got. I I can't remember how many it is, but every stat they've got, I reckon there'd be about 70, 50 to 70. Yeah. 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 So anything you can think of. And then they they send it in raw format. So you've just got a timestamp with player name and the, the technical involvement. So for some of those papers, we grouped them into like positive and negative outcomes. So, and then others we grouped into like factor scores just to condense it a little bit. But knowing that every, every technical involvement goes into those calculations. In previous research, a lot of people have sort of just handpicked the key technical involvements, kicks, handballs, disposals, that kind of thing. We actually used everything that was available to us. So that's, I guess, the, the, the difference point there as well.
2: Yeah, and like uh, like how you broke it down for, I guess from the athlete's perspective in terms of yeah you know, agility is pretty important getting a good score there seemed to help your your cause in getting drafted. What was what would that be in terms of the f- football
0: side of things in terms of statistics? Is it the amount of you get is effective for, or more technical involvements in general? So regardless of regardless of your position, knowing that there's position specific technical involvements, obviously. So just more technical involvements in general, and more technical involvements per minute of gameplay, yeah, significantly increases your. Which makes sense, right? Yeah. So as long as I guess if you're an athlete, as long as you're thinking that you know each each of those technical involvements can have a positive or negative outcome, right? So if more are being positive outcome, if your positive outcomes are outweighing your negative outcomes, well then that's better. But in total, techni- total technical involvements doesn't always take into account in the outcome, which was part of the issue that we identified as a limitation of some of the previous research. So adding that in was... Uh, After seeing that amount of data, like how
2: important do you... I guess if you were working with the Bendigo pioneers again and you're briefing the boys and girls there, like how important is the combine and putting your best foot forward compared to, I guess, you know actually playing the game, putting your energy towards playing, you know, yeah
0: least, you, want, you want to do it well at everything, but. Yeah, I would never, I would never discount playing the game. Obviously that's, that's first and foremost, but the, the, I guess the, the unique thing about the, the combine or the NAB league testing day is all eyes are there. It's, it's the one moment where everyone is there and, and physical qualities do play a big factor in getting drafted. And, you know, we, we, if you think about that, we think that the reason for that is, you know, ideally, particularly early picks within the draft, you know, teams are picking players that are likely to be able to have more immediate impact, right? Come in and play. Those are going to be the more physically developed players. Now that's not saying that if you're not physically developed at the time of testing, then you haven't got a chance of being drafted. But what I'm saying is like, particularly those early draft picks, then clubs are likely going to be looking for, you know, players that can come in and have an early impact on their struggling list. And then some of the later, some of the later draft picks, then that's where they're sort of, because everyone's talented there, right? Everyone's talented. So some of the later picks, they might pick some of those more talented kids that might not be as physically developed. You know, they can have two to three full years with them to develop them how they want. So back to your question, it is really important I guess my my why I know you ask about a pet peeve later, but my pet peeve would be training just for the combine. I think I think at that level, you've just got to train, train consistently, train everything, get better at everything, yeah, and let the rest take care of itself. I see a lot of people just specifically training for the tests in in the combine, and that's fine, limiting your your football development as well by just doing it. It is sort of conducive to for an eighteen year old
2: in terms of motivation, like. You, like you said all eyes are on you so you, did, you know you, that that adds an element of pressure and but then the other aspect of it is it's it's so objective in terms of it's all timed and you compare it against your peers so you can easily see how you think that that's more important than potentially you know your football performance or maybe you do just distract your efforts towards putting in so much work towards testing well and, yeah. and that might be taken away and obviously we're not suggesting that you that you do that but put your best foot forward. I, I guess, again, a takeaway for the footballers is the most important thing is the game. From what you've seen from that point, play your best football, put your best foot forward, but then consistently work on those traits week after week and you'll still test well. Absolutely. Yeah, that would be, yeah, would uh, And going back to your own 3 Mate, made, who have been some strong influencers or mentors, if you
0: like, that have helped shape your philosophy? Yeah, so I think, oh, I'm going to go back to sort of my Doha days. It was really interesting. It was a really unexpected job that came up. But I was really, really lucky to work with some pretty incredible people. First and foremost, I think Alex Natura, who most of you guys will know, you know, above and beyond just being a good friend, getting to know him over there for a couple of years. And obviously he's an expert on multiple topics and world renowned for those as well. But him personally, he's really good with like the finer coaching and leadership stuff. So he's sort of been someone I've, I've always spoken to and kept in contact with around that kind of thing, developing my leadership, developing my finer coaching skills. So so him there from that perspective, Marco Cardinale and Andy Murray. So Marco Cardinale is still over there. He's at Aspetar now, but he was the head of physiology when I was there. And Andy Murray, who is over now in NBA, I believe, he went to Oregon after Aspire. He was the head of sports science. So some of the things those guys were doing at the time, we were using SmarterBase, but they were doing a lot of external reporting or introducing Power, Power BI. Was becoming a big thing then, and obviously over in over in Doha we had access to all the tech you could ever imagine. But what they were doing, they were pulling out, they were creating a lot of live, a lot of live reports, pulling data from SmarterBase and pulling pushing them into Power BI, creating a lot of visualizations for coaches. A lot of coaches that didn't speak English or had poor English, so really challenged their visualization skills and their. I guess the challenge was: what information do we present to these coaches that don't have the language or with the language barrier? So those two in particular really opened my eyes to that side of things, and that gave me a bit of a thirst to sort of go. And we had access to a lot of data, so I was learning off those guys around those skills, you know, creating live live reports updating reports dashboarding presenting in power bi and that kind of thing so if we think of this as a sports science chat well those two were pretty influential in my career around sort of exciting that interest in data and visualization and that kind of thing
2: is that at that point in time is that where you started to i guess look into sports science and it's not that you have to sports science and an snc you can sort of be both but yeah
0: absolutely i I've I, I've always, since then, I've always sort of tinkered away with data on the side, like as an essence, even as an s right? You're collecting data all the time. So yeah, utilizing those skills, you know, even if I'm not presenting anything, at least I've got live data that I understand. It's coming from my environment that I can tinker away with, I can play with, I can set up dashboards, I can report in Power BI, I can do whatever I want with. I've always done that. And I've just gradually built up my skill set, added to that skill set, and probably now I would say I'm in a position where my skill set is is you know the S and C. I've I've shifted away from that, not that put away, but definitely now I'm I'm getting a lot of oh, satisfaction, I guess, out of the sports science side of things, like really really investigating data and the challenge of presenting it in a way that people can understand and that kind of thing is sort of, yeah exciting for me. Yeah, absolutely, and the. Highlights, I guess, over your
2: career, the things
0: that sort of spring in front of mind that you you're proud of. Yeah, there's probably a few early doors in my undergrad. the the the, the, the hamstring guys. I, I did my undergrad at QUT, and the hamstring guys, Tony Shields, and he had a few PhD students who are now big in the hamstring world at ACU and other various unis. They had a one of my subject options was a research project with them, so they were setting up. You know, they had the initial Nord board and they were doing all the research, return to play research and all that kind of stuff to so spend about, well, basically a semester with them. And, and I think they really, they were pivotal, I think, in opening my eyes to applied research. going through undergrad, you're always reading all the, you know, you, you're directed towards papers to read and that kind of thing. But these guys really opened and what they were doing opened my eyes to sort of the, the applied world of sports science. So that was pretty influential. I think my time, again, in Doha, opened my eyes to a lot of tech. I was very lucky that we had access to lots of stuff there. So any strength diagnostic tech, you imagine. And then, I guess, the practitioners alongside that as well. We had very biomechanists and physiologists and that as well. I think my time in the NAB League was standing, really, I think, you know, the impact you can have at that level and in that environment, coming in as a practitioner was really like having the ability to undertake League-wide research was pretty cool there as well, so I was having impact things than just the pioneers, so that was, that was pretty special. And then I think I touched on it earlier, but, but finally it was pretty pretty cool, pretty surreal to be sitting back watching the 2021 draft, probably several beers, sort of ticking off those players that you know, we had predicted to be drafted. You know, the two previous studies we had prospect- retrospectively looked at, you know, here's the data. Did those players get drafted? Yes or no. This time we go, all right, these are the ones we think are going to get drafted. We ran our models and then we sat down and we go, yep, they did. No, they didn't. So that was pretty cool and something I don't think too many people have probably done, to be honest. So.
2: Yeah, definitely. You <laughs> need
0: yeah, pretty cool insight into, I guess, what's
2: important. And the flip side, I guess, yeah, in elite sport comes pressure. What have been some moments where you've been significantly challenged and, I guess, yeah, big growth areas? Maybe what did
0: you sort of learn from them? Yeah, and, well, I, I haven't been in pro sport for long now. This is my first pro sport gig, but I think, you know, just in terms of my career, I've been in the industry a fair while now. I think what I sort of wanted to touch on here was, was probably around like starting out in the industry is bloody tough. Yeah. And they don't, they don't actually tell you at uni. They might now. I don't think they do. We, we get a lot of interns and that through and, they, you know, to how hard the industry is. So I, I came through... I came through S&C sort of at the stage where it was it was getting professional. So there was still a lot of like the forefathers, you know, the Dan Bakers and all of them, the the, the current Asker board and all those guys in their professional roles. And there wasn't many professional roles, so they were all filled. And those guys still had a lot a lot of time in their career to 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 keep going. So that's when the internship era sort of started. You know, all these teams and clubs were offering unpaid internships and that kind sort of thing, and I know that's still happening. I just couldn't afford to do that. My my personal circumstances didn't allow me to go and do an unpaid internship at a pro club. So, I guess what I did was look for. It, it probably contributed to me moving around a fair bit and, and doing various roles. But I think what I was sort of looking for was exposing myself to to different sports, different environments, different coaches, and etc. Like if I couldn't go and do an unpaid internship in a pro club and just work my way up through there, well, then I wanted to expose myself to a breadth of experiences. So that's sort of how I overcome it. And and I think it will put me in good stead in future, but I've been late to the party in terms of the pro sport. So I guess that's, that's probably my biggest thing is for, for people out there who are wanting to get into the industry. By all means, it's a great industry to be in, but but just understand, like, you, you've probably got a number of tough years to uh, to go through before you before, yeah, 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 get full time. Yeah, yeah. 100%. That's great advice,
2: mate. And like you said, if you're not hearing it at university, you're you only you going to know what you know. So until someone <laughs> sort of sheds light on how hard it is, you can sort of learn the hard way sometimes. But I think that's great advice. There's many different roads to, to that full-time contract. And like you said, the more experiences you can sort of bank, it's going to set yourself up for when you do land that first full-time contract to make an impact. I guess moving to the, the topic of applied sports science, and first one's quite a basic one, just to intro in the, the topic. As a sports scientist, how do you use GPS data to analyze an athlete's performance? Or do you...
0: Yeah, yeah so the GPS probably takes up, I'd say, 90% of my time. So it's a massive component of our program at the Broncos. Yep. So we obviously use it to monitor player workloads both in training and games. I guess to a deeper level, we're not doing anything that other people are. To a deeper level, we we, we use it to monitor squad intensity in key drills. So each of our training sessions in a week will have or, or a certain number of allocated key drills. So we look to use the GPS to really quantify or, or analyze whether we're hitting target intensities there. And then we do that from a player perspective as well. So squad level, player level, and then, obviously, longitudinally, we use GPS to, to manage workloads as well.
2: From your point of view, in looking at football and then also rugby, I guess starting with football, what are some of the key metrics that a sports scientist should be across, and how do you sort of explain that to, I guess, to the athlete in terms of what what it all means?
0: Yeah, I'll, I don't think I don't think the metrics are too different. Well. Put it this way, I'm using the same metrics at the Broncos that I was at pioneers. Your thresholds are a little bit different, potentially. So, I, I, if we go to the main metrics, everyone's going to be aware of obviously your total distance, high-speed running distance and efforts. Um, very high-speed running distance and efforts. Use a 90% max velocity threshold as well. So, we'll look at distance accumulated there, and we'll look at number of efforts above 90% max velocity. And then I didn't use axles and decels much in, in footy, in AFL. We use it a lot more in, in NRL. And that's purely just because it's more an axle, decel, linear sport. So it makes sense to use them there. So in terms of those those metrics, they're not really any different. I, I did say that sometimes your, your thresholds will differ. So I know in NAB League, they were using just standardized four meters per second for high speed running and six meters per second sprinting, they called it. Uh, we use five and a half meters per second for high speed running and seven meters per second for sprinting. My research, my big demand paper comparing NAB League and AFL, I actually used raw data. So I was able to compare both using five and a half and seven, which I think is really important to be able to do. The the other thing, so on top of just those general metrics that you're looking at and, and reporting on, the, the big thing we do and a lot of my time is spent, we look at how much time that we accumulate above or at or above game intensities. So early in my role, I spent a fair bit of time really digging deep into game demands and then looking at the peak game demands from sort of one to 10 minutes. And I did this in, in AFL as well. And then basically what we can do each training session or each main drill, key drill, we can sort of a player, we can provide a target intensity for a player. And depending on the drill, the metric we use might be different, but that each player will get a target, the squad will get a target as an average, and then we basically calculate how much time is spent at or above game intensities for the same duration. And then we report on that. Does that make sense? Yeah, it does. So that for the for the
2: athletes listening in you mentioned it could vary depending on whether it's sort of the volume running yeah. or high speed or the sprint distance. Would that be depending on how the Team and the coaches want the players to to play, or is that dependent on sort of management of
0: athlete's body? Or that'll generally be on the 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 metric that we choose to report on or or provide a target for. Or generally, in in NRL, will be based around what the drill constraints are. So if we're doing an arm wrestle, for example, which is basically just back and forth, we might do a five minute block. It's continuous we would probably expect or, or we would generally use meters per minute as the target metric there. For some of our other ones that might be we might have short duration breaks within, so we call them discontinuous drills. so it might be a three sets and then a 30 second walk to reset and go again and you might go for six minutes, continue that. but there's little breaks in between. We would probably use a more of an axle based metric there. Because we would, we would expect that the rest period's ability to recover, and then the subsequent set or three sets is going to be at higher intensity. So we actually want to ca- capture that through the the high intensity accelerations and decelerations. So that's a bit of an example there as to how we might use different different metrics depending on what drill we're doing. If we're doing a drill where there's lots of like movement from outside backs, they might be switching side or whatever, or the fullback's doing a lot of sweeping, that kind of then we can look at high-speed metrics and that kind of Rugby league is very different to AFL. I guess one of the main points, it's really hard to manufacture increase in intensity or an increase in pace in rugby league in training if you're doing 13 on 13. Because you've just naturally, you've got a defensive line in front of you, you get the ball, they're moving up straight away. So you've got 10 metres less than probably 5 metres by the time you meet them. Really hard to, to sort of manual or artificially increase the pace of the game. if um, if you relate that to or contrastly to afl a lot of the work is done off the ball so the contest is probably 10 percent of what's going on on the field at any one point in time maybe even less it's really easy to, to to artificially increase the pace of an afl game through work off the ball through separation from your opponent all that kind of thing just movement up and down the field so i think afl is much more suited to the, the meters per minute metric than rugby league in saying that we use meters per minute a lot in rugby league because it's relatable people understand it but there are occasions where we need to bring the accel decel component into those equations as well and are those are the athletes getting
2: live feedback in between those sets like in those 30 second periods is it quite individual in that sense or is it more just general feeding it to the hpm about you know this is what we're sort of seeing
0: so, so, in preseason, we don't we don't give feedback to players live in session. But in preseason, we report and our key drills. We will rank players based off the percentage of their target that they achieve, and we do that positionally. And we put that up on TV screens around in the locker rooms, in the gym, that kind of thing, directly after, straight after the session. So it's front of mind. Sometimes, you know, in preseason, if they're below targets, players might get punishments or, or whatever. In season we do that a lot less, but those 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 same reports will go to H performance staff and coaches. So they can they can always see that information, but in terms of relating that back to players, that's more a pre season thing, more to drive intent. And yeah. Yeah. No, that makes sense. And you mentioned
2: GPS is ninety percent of your workload. What would be sort of what are you looking at from the other in your role currently? What's sort of the other ten percent?
0: For me, I'm lucky. I've got an assistant who can, he does a lot of the, you know, set up, pack up, that kind of stuff. So it frees me up with more time to be reporting, but I'm still fairly new in my role as well. I'm a, I came in in round two last year, so I've only had, you know, what am I, not even 18 months. So a lot of my other work has been around, I guess, automating my processes. The fact that I came in in round two, I really just had to hit the ground running and, you know, present everything in Excel really simply, basically, I spent the season getting it up to presenting everything how we wanted. I'm sort of tinkering away with automating everything. So it frees me up even more to be able to, whether it's get down on the gym floor, whether it's just being, being innovative, sitting back, reading re- research, sitting back, just thinking about things, how can we do things better? Just trying to free myself up there. And I guess make the processes that are pretty, pretty labor intensive, more efficient, and I guess less room for error in the in in the process,
2: yeah. And you mentioned Power BI. What are some sort of other technologies that you found have been quite helpful for automation? I guess from a sports science point of view, those listening in, maybe perhaps they're studying or or they're looking to sort of develop their skill set to one day be a sports scientist. What are some important
0: things to get your head around? Use Power BI every day for just just sort of my summary reports. Feeding into that, and this was a skill I developed or started. Actually, I started tinkering with Python. So most people familiar with R, Python similar to R. I'm not going to argue one's better than the other, but I've just done most of my work in Python. So started tinkering with that when I got back to Brisbane from, from Doha, just playing around with data manipulation in that. And then through the PhD, really developed that skill set because I was working with big data sets. I had to manipulate a lot of things. I had to merge data sets together, that kind of thing. And then I was I was dealing with a lot of raw data, adding in new columns and new calculations and that kind of thing. So Python was really crucial there to automate and, and quicken that process up. So Python or R can both do similar things, but definitely those one or both of those R coding languages have been super helpful. I use them every day. I use Python every day in my role at the moment. So I use Python to I export. Uh, data from we use catapult gps export it uh, run it through some python script and it basically separates it into three separate databases that then i run power bi reports off be really useful in i guess um automation but also just keeping data clean and then you use power bi to visualize and saying that i do visualize some stuff in python as well so it's pretty powerful for that too and then the other one's really just excel like Excel is my go-to for every day, you know, just tinkering, anything I need a lot of manual capabilities in and quickly, I'll do in Excel. If I'm building something in Python, I'll always build it in Excel first so that I can cross-check and I know what my Python output is, is correct against my, my Excel. So those, those are the main ones. I know Power BI, you know, competitor to their Tableau, I know a lot of people are using Tableau now, those would be the main ones, just get, get good in Excel and then, and then you know, tinker. I'm I'm not proficient in Python at all. I do a, a lot of googling, a lot of uh, you know, on forums and that kind of thing. But I've got the ability to I know what I want, and I know how to ask the right questions, and I know how to tinker. I'm I'm at a level where I can.
2: And that was that's a good segue for the next question, I guess. Along the way, yeah, uh, you arise with new problems and and need to learn. And I guess technology is constantly evolving with artificial intelligence now as well. And like, how do you? What's your most effective way to to learn new skill? You mentioned googling. You know, is it is there, yeah. is there any courses that you've done over the time online
0: courses, or do you more about just trial and error? And well, you know, I have signed up to a couple of courses. So, if we use Python as an example, there, there's a million courses online. And again, I'm I'm not an expert at all. I did sign up to some courses. I lasted probably a week. Not you know, like yeah, I did last long. Essentially, my my skill set was more advanced than starting off on those courses, but not advanced enough to do things on my own. So, uh, but I always had access to my own data sets as well and, and my own questions that I wanted to answer. So I started going on forums, Stack Overflow is a good one, forums, and just basically putting in my data, asking people questions and they would come back to me with answers. I shouldn't say this, but now chat GPT's Bloody amazing! You can yeah. put, you can put snippets of code in, and and you can say you know I've come up with this particular error. Can you help me problem solve it? Or you can put in a particular snippet of code and go adjust this code to do such and such. So I feel like a bit of a fraud there, but I think the beauty of ChatGPT or, or or where I are about it is the skill is actually knowing what to ask it. So it's mm-hmm. going to pump it. You got to prompt it. Same with Stack Overflow, like same with asking other people. You got to know what you want and you've got to i yeah. have had an attempt and and then use that to sort of fine-tune or, you know, in my early days when I was coding, I was doing it very longhand, long-hand coding, I would call it. So you can use that sort of thing like ChatGPT to tidy it up. So that's been a really good tool. That's been a really good tool for my assistant as well in that he can see my code snippets. He can interpret them and understand them. And then he can go try and replicate them with his own data set or a different data set or try and manipulate it to get a different variable and that kind of thing. So it's helped his learning as well. So don't discount, but also don't be a hundred percent reliant on it. Otherwise you just won't learn. Yeah, for sure. And I guess you'd have to have a strong filter to recognize when it's,
2: you know, when it is off and when it's got the coding role and
0: yeah, well, and, and, this, and that's why I would, I would generally always just do it in Excel first so that I can cross-reference outcomes. And you mentioned hits above 90% max
2: velocity. I imagine there's a, some performance metric at, at, you know, tied into that or an injury mitigation aspect. What are some sort of important injury mitigation things do you look at and feed through, if at all, when it comes to GPS?
0: Yeah, so this is a massive question Massive area. Everyone wants to obviously reduce and limit and mitigate injuries. I think, you know, from from, from our perspective at the Broncos, we, we watch very closely, particularly very high speed running uh, distance and exposures, and then our 90% plus distance and exposures. Those are the two that we, you know, we focus in on. We're very prospective with those. But I think first and foremost, you just got to understand the demands of the sport that you're playing, right? So For me, my biggest, my my remit is being able to provide data to the decision makers or the people that are programming and running sessions so that they've got access to relevant data in a timely fashion so that they can program more efficiently and more effectively. That's how I see my role. So I think from from a resilience or injury mitigation, the biggest thing is if you've got to have access to that data, then again, understand the match demands. If you also understand that the typical in season weekly volumes. So look back at your data. What are your typical in season weekly volumes for those key metrics? And then I guess as as long as you progress towards them in your preseason period, progress towards them in a in an objective, progressive manner and exceed them occasionally. And I think that's key, exceed those demands occasionally as well. Then I think resilience almost takes care of itself as long as you are training consistently. So I guess as a bit of a framework, if you work backwards, how do we think about mitigating or reducing injury risk? We need to understand what do they need to be prepared for in their most demanding week of competition as a player? And this is position-specific. What do they need to be prepared for in the most demanding seven days or 10 days or 14 days? And understand that that's going to be different than the above. So doing a paper at the moment where we're looking at comparing a round-by-round round volume or in-season max versus seven-day rolling. A round in NRL could be six days. So in a rolling seven-day period, they've actually got two games. So you need, yeah, just understand the dynamic there. So what do they need to be prepared for in their most demanding week? But that may be different to their most demanding seven days or eight days or most demanding turnaround, I guess. What do they need to be prepared for in an individual game? And then you work backwards from that. So you use your pre- pre-season, as I said, progressively get them up to those loads, those volumes. Sure, they've had at least some exposure above those volumes, but understand that you know, not all of those metrics need to be ticked off in the one session necessarily. You know, you might, you might exceed very high speed running volumes in one week or one session. You might exceed high intensity accelerations in another session. You might exceed overall volume. Or total distance in another session. Like they don't all have to necessarily be done at the same time. And that would be my approach to developing resilience, I guess. And then the other thing is just consistency in training. You know, how how often uh, and do you have a way to measure and objectively look back at how often players have been training, how often have they had to be modified in training, and how does that affect, I guess, availability for games? And for, for situations which I'm sure
2: happen perhaps on a weekly basis where you've got a few athletes that didn't hit their 90% in the game out their, you know four week averages down in their very high speed running like what's the sort of discussion with the performance team and and do you get that in live straight after the game to top them up on that day or is it more a matter of trying to get it in in the following main session yeah, what are some key considerations, I guess, when you're in season?
0: So most of our most of our top-ups, as, as I said earlier, like rugby league doesn't change too much. So there, there's not a lot of variation from player to player in the NRL squad in, in sort of weekly volumes. Where we struggle is with our players that aren't in our top 17. So we, we typically select an 18th and a 19th man, or if we're traveling, we might take up to 20. So there's, there's potentially one through to four or five players there that might not get to play a game on the weekend. There's other players that will play in the Q Cup and they might get limited minutes there. They might get full minutes there. So that's that's where our, I guess, challenge is managing the, the squad around their exposure to game minutes. Generally, whatever's missed can be picked up in top up at the end of one session like there's not a huge amount of variation you know when we're never really chasing we're never chasing six to eight k's for a player in in volume as a top up or whenever adding an extra session in the the variation is is small enough that we can generally get it as a top up at the end of a session and end of our main training session during the week so and, and it's generally only those high speed running, very high speed running meters. We won't chase jumped meters. That might be different in AFL. Well, I'd suggest that is different in AFL, but, but, but not. We, we don't do that in, in rugby league. Yep. That makes sense. And I guess for sports
2: scientists new to using GPS, what are some common mistakes early on when you're sort of getting used to using it? And I guess your engagement with athletes?
0: And how can you sort of rectify those? Your point there, engagement with athletes or engagement with whoever, whatever stakeholder you're presenting the data to. I, I see a lot of I see a lot of reporting in sports science or by sports scientists that is that is just day to day reporting. So it's a report on the training session. It's a report on the drills in the training session. It's a report on the game. It's a weekly report. What you need to where I think. No, what you need to do, in my opinion, is always relate it back to something, okay? So for us, we do a summary report for our training session, but our key drills, we relate back to game intensity. So coaches know that if a four-minute drill was done, they know that what every player that did that drill, they know what intensity of a four-minute period of play or passage of play in a game that that player reached in that drill. So we're always relating our drills back to game plot we do that for the players as well a game report where does that game actually how does that game relate to where around 16 or well, our last game was around 15 how does that game on top of the the individual game summary how does it relate to the 14 other games that have come before it? well how does it relate to the same opposition the year prior so, relate it back to something. Otherwise, it's meaningless. And that's where your longitudinal databasing. So, going back to part of using Python is to set up these longitudinal databases so that we've got access to all of this longitudinal data. We can always look back and relate to something. So, our game data, I will have, I've got one visualization for our game data at the moment, which is just the four quadrants. I stole it off someone else in terms of the idea. But Just four quadrants. We've got total distance down on the X axis, meters per minute on the Y. And so it's basically a top right quadrant is high volume, high intensity, bottom left is low volume, low intensity. Where does each game sit? So quickly coaches can go, Okay, well, start of the season, everyone was sort of down the lower volume, low intensity. You know, we're we're working into the season. But now we're really, our last four games have been that top right quadrant. You know, they're really high intensity, they're fast paced and they're high volume. So it, it's it's relating the information back to something all the time rather than just presenting the day-to-day information. That would be my advice around that. That I think is the biggest challenge because otherwise you're not telling a story that anyone's learning from. Yeah, that's great advice. Thanks for sharing that, mate. That's no doubt great right, gem so
2: for those either starting out or even in current roles that maybe have slipped into that habit of having a report, but not, like you mentioned, adding context to it and adding a story to it. Before we wrap up the show, mate, is there anything on this topic in terms of applied sports science and understanding match demands that you'd like to touch on that we haven't? I
0: think so, We'll wish that yeah, a bit the safe, maybe.
2: Yeah, uh, no, it's good, mate. That's uh, some quality info in there. You touched on a pet peeve earlier.
0: Uh, yeah, in your work life or from an, a broader industry point of view, are there any other? We're going to throw my wife under the bus here. Uh, any sports scientists will know you've always got a million things open on your computer on your laptop, and when I bring it home at night, plug it in onto onto charge, and then she'll unplug it to plug hers into charge, and all your million things close and you got to open everything up the next morning that's a massive massive in relation to the job well the biggest thing that people just don't realize the time it takes i guess to to collect all the gps units you know download all the data you know so if you if you're chasing players for their gps unit you can you can have all all 30 units in there you're missing one and you, you know you're chasing a player around for 30 minutes to find their unit it just adds an extra 30 minutes to your day that they don't yeah, yeah have you yeah. all the
2: time with us in the gym? They'll we a player still with the unit off? If they're back,
0: not ideal. What about favorite way to spend your day off? Well, I haven't had many days off to be honest at the moment. Most of them were spent PhD writing. I ask, oh, PhD. Yeah. yeah. After that, I made one. I enjoy just looking at your coffee in the morning, sitting with some quiet time and just unwinding. I think I enjoy going to the beach, so I'll try to get down there down the coast a little bit more. Yeah, I think i I need to knock the PhD off, so that's sort of front of my mind at the moment. And once once I do that, then I don't know, I might take up a hobby or something.
2: And what about obviously we, you know, middle part of the year of 2023, what's on the
0: horizon for you? What are you excited about for the rest of the year? Hopefully we make final play play in a old final series. That'll be pretty cool. Obviously finishing the PhD, and I think yeah, just just sort of continuing to embed myself in I haven't been involved in rugby league before so continuing to embed myself there and yeah I think you know all, all things are pointing towards finals for us so that's pretty exciting
2: and for those that have follow up questions where's the best place to get in contact social media, email uh,
0: yeah I'm on all social media I don't really use it much I'm on Widow uh, What's you can find it, add it in the show notes otherwise my Broncos email is, is fine as well Yep. you can. Add that. For those listening in to the the recording, and you might
2: be like me and listen to your podcast while driving. Uh, yeah, don't stress. You don't need to park the car. We'll, we'll add the show notes in and add the links. That's easy for you to find once you once you're ready to you know, find Jake and and stalk him on Twitter and send through some questions. But thank you so much for for jumping on, mate, and sharing with us both some your experiences, how you worked in the industry. Like you touched on, it's not easy to get that full time contract, but it's good to to share. We believe that success leaves clues, so good to share your journey in, in how to get that contract as well as PhD and of course the topic of applied sports science and how important it is to engage the athletes, the coaches and performance team. Ultimately make an impact with with your role. Yeah. Thanks again for jumping on and thanks for everyone that's tuned in live. If you tuned in halfway through, make sure to listen to the very start. This will live on our YouTube channel until we publish it on our podcast in the coming weeks. Our next live chat is with Scott Pollock. They'll be on the twenty second on Thursday, so it's next week. Twenty-second of June at three PM Australian Standard Time. So we'll see you guys then. Sweet mate, thanks, Jack. If you enjoyed this episode and want even more, our academy is for you. The Prepare Like a Pro Academy is a platform that hosts exclusive features and bonus content, such q and A Q&A segment aimed at getting to know the guests on a more personal level. Here's an example with Emily Meehan, head sports dietitian of the Columbia Football Club. What are things that that
3: fire you up? Oh, this one is always, uh, I suppose it is, um, it'll be topical for most people, I think, but staying in your lane. And I often find that with nutrition, everyone eats, so everyone has an opinion. And I think that's what really gets me fired up um, because so many people try and provide nutrition advice based on their end of one experience when they did intermittent fasting or keto or whatever it might be. And then game changes.
2: Like yeah, game, change. game
3: changes, whatever that might be. And look, it probably keeps me in a job, but that it does drive me insane because yeah. sometimes the information can be so detrimental um, and opposite to what I've been working with my athlete or athletes. And, you know, and because they hear it on someone's socials or through a documentary, it unravels everything that I've been working with in athlete. All. Yeah.
2: Yeah. Another feature of our academy is the opportunity each week to join myself as co-host on the Prepare Like a Pro live chat show. Here's an example with academy member Rama Davies, the strength and conditioning coach at the Box Hill Hawks. Welcome Rama to the chat. Uh, Rama has also worked at, at Box Hill, or currently he's working at Box Hill Hawks with us, awesome. so he's another Box Hill man uh, in the strength and conditioning department. So. I'll hand it over to you, Ramita, to ask your question, mate. Thanks for joining us.
1: Excellent. Thanks, Jack. And yeah, thanks. Um, thanks, Sam, for the chat. It was, uh, I found it to be really insightful. Plenty of gems in there. Um, and I enjoyed it a lot. Um, mate, my my question to you was, you spoke a, a quite a bit about um, perspective during that chat. Um, and I was wondering what are some of the things that you either know or um do physically that um you wish you either knew or did uh, back at the beginning of your career uh, what are some of those things mm, yeah good question um yeah so i suppose with perspective on life um that sort of point um it yeah certainly yeah has been massive for me now and and didn't probably have that as much um when i was younger um I suppose one thing I might mention is is gratitude. I spend a lot of my yes. time um, doing a lot of gratitude exercises, listening to podcasts, doing a, a journal every day, just a bit to uh, say what I'm grateful for. Sort of three things, and um, that's a fantastic way that I've been able to, yeah, like reset and and just kind of gain that gratitude and perspective about you know that there is more to life than football, or you know, might whatever. As an S and C coach, you know, if something's you having a hard time. Um, it can be massive with just, yeah, opening your eyes a little bit and losing that sort of tunnel vision or being stuck in that, in that work bubble. Um, so that's, that's been huge. Um, I think I wish back then when I was younger, I asked more questions and was a bit more open to different things. I think I was a bit single-minded back then. And, um, you know, I thought there was one way of doing things and, um, if I kind of didn't have that fear fear of you know asking a silly question or fear of judgment it would have got me a lot further and i probably would have learned a lot quicker um and yeah yeah, like just yeah being open to sort of different things um because you never know what you might find it's just yeah there's so many people like great people out there knowledgeable people to learn off and there's plenty more where that came from
2: if you would like to learn more then enter patreon.com forward slash prepare like a pro or head to the link in our show notes Thank you for listening to the Prepare Like a Pro podcast. If you like this episode, it would be a massive help if you could like, follow, rate, give a review, or even share with your mates. The show is recorded in Melbourne, Australia. Be sure to follow our Instagram page for all updates on our latest and greatest. If you would like to get in touch to suggest a guest or advertise with the Prepare Like a Pro podcast, please email me at jack at preparelikeapro.com. Thanks so much for tuning in.